Section six of the Romance of Popular Exploration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Lewin. The second part of Chapter five of The Romance of Popular Exploration by G. Firth Scott. On September the 4th new ice formed on the water in which the ship was floating, and from observations taken from high land in shore all doubt was removed as to where they were. They had navigated to the end of Robeson Channel, and were now in the Polar Sea. No land could be seen to the north, nothing but a vast wilderness of huge masses of polar ice, most of which had evidently been frozen for years. At midnight on the same day, they saw the last of the sun as it sank below the northern horizon. Winter was now upon them, and they set to work to make their quarters as comfortable as possible. Snow came down heavily for some days, but not for a week or so was it hard enough to cut into the blocks suitable for building snow-houses. When these were built, stores were removed to them, and observatories fitted up for recording the various conditions of the atmosphere. On September the 14th a severe gale sprang up, which caused the ice to move so much that the thin new ice in the basin was broken up, and a boat's crew were drifted away onto a floeberg two hundred yards from the ship, from whence they were only rescued after great difficulty and in a half-frozen condition. Some days subsequently, while a sledge-party was on the shore, one man was badly frostbitten. He did not know it until some time after, but he had tried to thaw his frozen foot-wraps in his sleeping-bag, instead of first removing them. The loss of feeling, and then of use in his legs, crippled him, and when he was brought on board it was seen what was wrong. This is one of the several evils men have to carefully guard against in the excessive cold. So long as they experience the stinging sensation of cold, they are free from a frost-bite but a man may have his face bitten and not realise it until he is told that he has turned dead white. Circulation has then been arrested, and immediate steps have to be taken to bring it back, or the flesh becomes dead. The dogs also began to suffer from a disease which sent them into fits, and which puzzled the Eskimo driver and the doctors. Some of them wandered away over the ice, and others died, until only fifteen remained out of thirty and many of those were thin and weakly. Then as the cold increased, ice formed in the chimneys, and damp settled on the beams and walls between decks every time the cold air was admitted, so that it had to be constantly sponged up, while the officers had to spread waterproof coverings over their beds to protect themselves from it when they slept. On November the 8th it was so dark at midday that a newspaper could not be read, nor could a man be distinguished a dozen yards away. For eighty-seven days more the sun would be absent, but the moon visited the dark, cold skies, appearing for ten days without setting, and then going out of sight for thirteen. On November the 13th the cold was so intense that the mercury froze in the thermometer. But if it was dark and cold outside, the ship's company made themselves comfortable. A school was started, a theatre was opened, the Royal Arctic, and every Thursday they had popular concerts. Exercise was daily taken, and the general health was excellent, only one man being on the sick list, and he from a constitutional cause. The men were warmly clad when between decks, as the temperature there was never what one might term hot, 
but before going outside they had to wrap themselves up in a variety of thick heavy fur garments for there was often a difference of nearly one hundred degrees to be experienced the long stretch of winter's darkness was varied by the appearance from time to time of the aurora this was the phenomenon which so greatly puzzled and not infrequently terrified the early explorers assuming a variety of forms sometimes like the fringe of a vast curtain hanging in the sky at others appearing as bands and streaks of light waving and flickering over the heavens but always with this peculiarity that however bright they appeared no light was given to the surrounding atmosphere they were a source of constant interest to the men and so the winter passed not entirely without its pleasures in spite of the prolonged darkness with the beginning of spring active preparations were made for the sledging trips which were to carry out the work of surveying the surrounding land and penetrating farther to the north than it was possible for the vessels to go the great majority of the officers and men on the alert were told off for these expeditions six officers and six men remaining on board while fifty-three were split up into two parties one to survey the coast of grant's land and the other under commander markham and lieutenant parr to go north to the pole if possible the day the start was made the two parties were drawn up in line alongside the ship and the chaplain read prayers after which with cheers for one another and the men left behind they started both did good service the survey party carrying the survey round the coast well on to the western side the north pole party pressed on in the face of terrible difficulties until they reached the farthest point north that had yet been recorded in addition to the sledges laden with stores they dragged with them two whale-boats in case they should meet with open water but there was no sign of it as far as they went on the contrary their route lay over such excessively rough ice that although they travelled as a rule about ten miles a day so much of it was spent in getting around inaccessible hummocks that the actual progress towards the north rarely exceeded one mile a day when on april the eleventh they bade their comrades farewell they had provisions for seventy days and all were in good health and spirits the work of dragging the boats and sledges up and down the great masses of rugged ice which covered the polar sea was terribly trying however and by the time the ten miles were covered every one was ready to creep into the sleeping bags and rest as the sun began to rise above the horizon it made the snow and ice sparkle and glitter so much that their eyes accustomed for so long to darkness could not stand it goggles had to be worn to protect the sight but before they were adopted by all the members several were affected and lieutenant parr for some days suffered from snow blindness an affliction which fortunately passed away in time as the days went by the toil of dragging the sledges over the interminable and monotonous ice became more and more wearying there was no variety in the work no change in the surroundings and although the men stuck at their task with true british obstinacy it began to tell upon them one man fell sick growing weaker and weaker until he was no longer able to pull and was then unable to walk one of the boats was abandoned and the sick man laid on a sledge his condition was more than disquieting to the leaders for it was evident that he was suffering from scurvy and no one could say who would be the next to develop it on april the twenty-third they only added a mile and a quarter to their distance 
for they had come upon clumps of ice hummocks which made their progress so difficult that they had to combine forces to haul first one sledge and then another over the obstacles on april the twenty eighth when they were seventeen miles from the shore they found the track of a hare in the snow going towards the land but with the footprints so close together that the animal was evidently very weak where it had come from or how it had got so far from the shore were riddles they could not solve as may came in signs of scurvy made themselves only too evident among the members of the crew and on may the eleventh the leaders decided that the next day they would have to turn to the south once more they started with a light sledge in the morning and pushed on till noon when they took their bearings they had reached latitude eighty-three degrees twenty minutes twenty-six seconds north and they were then only three hundred and ninety-nine and a half miles from the pole itself having beaten all other records of arctic explorations the little band weary and sickening forgot their woes in the presence of their achievement a jorum of whisky had been presented to the expedition by the dean of dundee on condition that it was opened in the highest latitude reached it was now produced and the success of their efforts was toasted the while each man smoked a cigar also sent for consumption in the farthest north a hole was cut in the ice and soundings were taken the sea being seventy-two fathoms four hundred and thirty-two feet deep below them with a clay bottom the surface temperature being twenty eight point five degrees and the temperature at the bottom twenty eight point eight then they turned their backs upon the cold bleak ice-bound north and began the journey home again a journey which was to prove more trying than that which they had already accomplished the man who had first sickened and whose name was porter had become so weak that he could not move from the sledge on which he lay wrapped in a sleeping-bag gradually one man after another began to lose his strength until three or four were only able to support themselves and could give no assistance in hauling the sledges with the result that the labour pressed all the more heavily on the remainder of the party all of whom were more or less affected by scurvy the first fortnight of the return journey was a terribly wearing time to the leaders for they saw their men becoming weaker every day so that the progress was slower and more difficult while at the same time the only hope of escape was to reach land on the coast it would be possible for relief to meet them but out amongst the rugged hummocks of the polar sea the whole ship's company would not be able to find them the extra work thrown upon those who were not entirely incapacitated told severely upon their already enfeebled systems the toil no longer encouraged their appetites instead the sight of food became nauseous to them until towards the end of the month half a pannikin of pemmican was more than each man could manage to eat but the toil was still as weary and the cold as intense and without sufficient food to keep up their strength the outlook was almost hopeless still however the little band of seventeen struggled on setting an example of courage determination and absolute devotion to discipline and duty which has won for them as deep an admiration as their achievement of the farthest north record on june the second only six men and the two officers were able to do anything in the way of labour five men lay sick and helpless on the already laden sledges and four more were just able to stagger along from point to point after the dreary procession of sledges the progress was very slow now as it required all the strength which was left in the eight who alone were able to do anything to move one sledge at a time 
the second boat had been abandoned as it could not be dragged farther and the strain of moving the three sledges that remained was so great that when on june the fifth land was reached after an absence of two months the entire party was in a state of collapse the next day they rested and debated what was the best course to adopt to obtain help for it was outside of their power to drag the sledges any further porter was almost at death's door and unless help came very soon several more would be in a similar condition lieutenant parr was the strongest but even he was in a very low condition that however did not rob him of his courage nor of his readiness to give the rest of his life if necessary for the rescue of his comrades he volunteered to set out alone for the ship to carry word of the terrible plight of the party and the need for instant relief it was almost a hopeless task and the heavy hearts of the stricken men beating more hopefully at the token of such manly bravery drooped again as they remembered the dreary miles of snow and ice which would have to be covered and saw the weakened state of their would-be rescuer's strength but he was not to be gainsaid weak as he was he was yet the strongest of the party and he would make the attempt on june the sixth he started the little band watching him as he trudged bravely away giving him as hearty a cheer as they could slowly he made his way over the frozen shore and when he had passed out of sight the men looked at one another and wondered how far would he get before death overtook him how long before they all yielded to the same conqueror by the next morning one had already gone porter passing away after nearly two months fighting against the scourge commander markham and the four who were alone able to help him paid the last honours to their deceased comrade the british ensign was lowered to half-mast on the pole of the big sledge and a union jack was carefully wrapped round the body with great exertion in their emaciated condition a place was hollowed out in the frozen soil and there they placed him the funeral service being led by commander markham who in his diary thus wrote of the ceremony of all the melancholy and mournful duties i have ever been called upon to perform this has been the saddest a death in a small party like ours and under the present circumstances is a most depressing event and is keenly felt by all during the service all were more or less affected and many to tears a rude cross was fashioned out of a boat's oar and a spare sledge batten and it was placed at the head of the grave with the following inscription beneath this cross lie buried the remains of george porter r m a who died june the eighth eighteen seventy six thy will be done anxiously they waited during the rest of the day wondering as to the fate of lieutenant parr and half expecting to see him stagger back to the camp his splendid courage overcome by the difficulties of his journey but he did not return and the men crept into their sleeping-bags under the tents scarcely daring to think what the morrow would bring forth one or two of the sick men were visibly worse since the death of porter and the next day might mean the end of their lives if their gallant rescuer managed to make his way at all he could not reach the ship in time for relief to come for another day or two and no man dared to speak of what might occur in that interval the shouts of men's voices while they were yet within their sleeping-bags on the morning of june the ninth were so unexpected 
that at first those who heard them blamed their ears for playing them false. But it was no deception. Lieutenant Parr, with a magnificent heroism that deserves honour even among the many brave deeds which British sailors have performed, struggled on after leaving the camp without a stop until he came in sight of the alert. Directly he was discovered, he told of his comrades waiting helpless and sick. Relief parties were formed on the moment, and two officers, Lieutenants May and Moss, with a dog-team sledge laden with lime-juice and restoratives, started away while the other sledges were loading. They pressed on without a halt until they saw the tents of the camp, when they shouted as no one was to be seen about the place. They were up to the tents before any one came out, and when they did it was as though new life had been given to each man. The lime-juice, of which they were in such dire want, for by an oversight it had been omitted from the stores, was at once served round, giving fresh energy to those who were still able to move about, and greatly relieving those who were incapacitated. On the arrival of the remainder of the relief party, the invalids were all removed to the ship and attended to, every man recovering under medical treatment, before the alert weighed anchor for the south. This was done in August, when she rejoined the discovery, the officers of which, had also done splendid service in surveying the interior of Grinnellland behind Discovery Bay, and also along the northern coast of Greenland. While the Discovery was lying in her winter quarters, a successful attempt was made by Lieutenant Beaumont, accompanied by Dr. Coppinger and sixteen men, dragging two sledges, to communicate with the alert. They started away on April the 6th, while the cold was still nearly seventy degrees below zero a temperature which made sleeping almost impossible, as they had constantly to exercise to maintain their bodily heat. In spite of these drawbacks, however, the alert was reached. The intention was to continue the journey across Robeson Channel over to Greenland, and to explore as much of the northern coast as was possible. Reinforced by Lieutenant Rawson and five men, the party started on April the 20th from the alert, with four sledges and provisions for fifty-six days. As they approached the Greenland coast, the ice was very rough and tumbled about in irregular blocks, with heavy snow lying ankle-deep. Arriving at Polaris Bay, a depot of stores was made, and a detachment left in charge, the journey then being resumed. But the ice became more and more difficult, and the snow deeper. The strength of the whole party was taxed to the utmost to make any progress, and at the end of each day's work every one was wearied out with fatigue. Falls were frequent owing to the unevenness of the ice, and one man, Hand, was particularly unfortunate in this respect. By the time that Cape Stanton was reached, he was suffering considerably from stiffness, which was at first attributed to his tumbles, but when pain began to be manifest in his legs and gums, the truth of the matter became evident. He was affected with scurvy. This discovery was made on May the 10th, and the leader at once decided to send him back to Polaris Bay with Lieutenant Rawson and six men. The remainder of the men were asked to say whether they fancied they were affected, but all maintained the contrary, and asked to be allowed to continue the journey. With six men, Lieutenant Beaumont continued the route to the north, while Lieutenant Rawson returned to the depot at Polaris Bay. On his way other members of his party developed scurvy, and their plight was so distressful that for some days before they reached the depot, which they did on June the 3rd, 
Lieutenant Rawson and one man alone were able to drag the sledge, the former being so severely afflicted with snow-blindness that he had to walk for days with his eyes covered by a bandage. Hand, the first man affected, died as the sledge came within sight of the camp. In the meantime, Lieutenant Beaumont's party pushed on, difficulties increasing with every mile. The snow became deeper as they advanced, until they sank at every step over their knees. Describing it, the leader said, The hard crust on top would only just not bear you, while the depth prevented you from pushing forward through it, each leg sinking to about three inches above the knee, and the effort of lifting them so high as to extricate them from the deep footholds soon began to tell upon the men. The sun, shining on the snow, seemed to be unusually warm, while the exertion made them intensely thirsty, besides so exhausting them that they had to stop every fifty yards to rest and recover their breath. They were crossing a wide bay at the time, striving to reach the other shore, which did not seem to be more than a mile away. But the clearness of the atmosphere was very deceiving as to distance, for they struggled on for two days, and still the coast only seemed to be a mile distant. In order to make the way easier, the men were marched four abreast, the sledge being left until a road was forced through the snow. For five miles the march was continued, and at the end of that distance the coast did not appear a yard nearer. Sending the men back to the sledge, with orders to rest till he joined them, Lieutenant Beaumont and one man went forward. But after some hours of trying effort they did not reach the coast, and were compelled to turn back, having been able to observe that the shore was composed of great towering cliffs, with the snow piled up at the base. When they returned to the spot where the sledge had been left, they were thoroughly worn out by their exertions. As comfortable an encampment as could be arranged was made and for two days the party remained resting. Symptoms of scurvy were making themselves apparent among the men, under the fatigue brought on by their excessive toil. But no word of complaint was spoken, every man being ready and willing to do his duty. In the retreat of Commander Markham and his men from the farthest north, a splendid example of British heroism and discipline was given. The story of Lieutenant Beaumont's party furnishes another. The growing sickness of some of the men and the decreasing store of provisions brought home to the leaders the necessity of a return being made. At the end of the two days' rest the sledge was turned in the direction of Polaris Bay, and the men retraced their steps, finding the travelling somewhat easier now that they could use the road they had made by their previous passage through the snow. But the leader wanted to be able to form some idea of the coastline beyond where they had been turned back, and time after time he made ineffectual efforts to reach the shore and scale some high hill. At last he was successful, after tremendous exertion, in reaching the summit of Dragon Point, an altitude of 3,700 feet. From here he was able to command an extensive view, the land extending away as far as he could see into a cape which he named Britannia Cape. On June the 13th they arrived at Repulse Bay Depot, and the state of the health of the men is best shown by the record Lieutenant Beaumont left, and which was recovered by members of the Greeley expedition six years later. The record, dated June the 13th, 1876, reads, Three of us have returned from the camp, half a mile south, to fetch the remainder of the provisions. Dobbing has failed altogether this morning. 
Jones is much worse, and cannot last more than two or three days. Craig is nearly helpless. Therefore we cannot hope to reach Polaris Bay without assistance. Two men cannot do it, so we will go as far as we can, and live as long as we can. God help us. L. A. Beaumont the discovery of this record and the simple manly faith and courage it betokened was destined to be of great service to another band of english-speaking explorers in later years and their opinion of it and the admiration they felt for the man who wrote it will be told in the account of the greeley expedition meanwhile that lieutenant beaumont was making his heroic efforts to save the men of his party lieutenant rawson was growing anxious as to their position as they did not appear he on june the twenty second in company with one of the eskimo and a dog team sledge started along the coast in search of them three days later they were met on the last march they could have made for they were at the end of their strength lieutenant beaumont in his account says on the evening of the twenty fourth we started for our last journey with the sledge for finding that jones and gray were scarcely able to pull I had determined on reaching the shore to pitch the tent for the sick men, and walk over to Polaris Bay by myself, and see if there was any one there to help us. If not, to come back and send Jones and Gray, who could still walk, to the depot, while I remained with the sick, and got them on as best I could. When Lieutenant Rawson met them, he found the intrepid Beaumont straining at the sledge, with the two sick men helping him as much as they could, while on the sledge lay the four helpless invalids, made as comfortable as circumstances would permit. No time was lost in removing them to Polaris Bay, where under medical treatment all recovered save one. After a brief rest at Polaris Bay, the journey back to the Discovery was successfully carried out, and Lieutenant Beaumont had the pleasure of learning that his expedition had added considerably to the geographical knowledge of northern Greenland shortly after the return of the sledge parties the alert rejoined the discovery and towards the end of august both vessels weighed anchor and started for england where they arrived on november the second eighteen seventy six having been absent for seventeen months during which time they had carried the british flag to the farthest north and had brought within the knowledge of man localities previously unknown they had not reached the pole and had come to the conclusion after their experiences that to do so was beyond the range of human possibility. End of chapter 5 and of section 6